Let me invite you to turn again this morning to the book of Acts and to the fourth chapter. We've been considering in Acts chapters 3 and 4 an extraordinary series of events, haven't we? First of all, at the beginning of chapter 3, we saw a man who was more than 40 years old and lame from his mother's womb, so remarkably healed that he didn't just get up and limp home, made partially better, but he went into the temple walking and leaping and praising God. And all of this, not because Peter or John had any extraordinary spiritual power in and of themselves, but, quote, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, this man was made whole. And because the miracle was so remarkable, a crowd in chapter 3, verse 11, began to gather and Peter preached powerfully to them the gospel of Jesus, the news that Jesus could make them whole too, spiritually, if they would repent and return. Verse 19, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of of the Lord. And then we read in chapter 4 verse 4 that there was an amazing response to that message. Many of those who had heard the message believed and the number of men, the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And yet the Jewish authorities were none too pleased. Rather Verse 2, they were greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And verse 3, they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But then on the next day, when they brought these two disciples of Jesus out for questioning, Peter preached Jesus to them also. He just keeps preaching, but this time with different results. The Jewish council, instead of believing like so many in the crowds had done, actually commanded Peter and John in verse 18 not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And then comes one of the most remarkable, one of the greatest examples of courage in all of the Bible, it seems to me, in verses 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And surprisingly, even after that bold statement, the council in verse 21 let them go. But not without making a few more threats toward them before they sent them out the door. And we come this morning to find out what Peter and John did next. What did they do after being turned loose from the council's grip? What was their next move? What did they do about the threats that had been made and the commandment to stop preaching Jesus? What did they do with the nerve-wracked feelings that they may have had in the pit of their stomachs, even in spite of their boldness? publicly before the council. What happens next? Well, let's find out now, beginning in chapter 4, verse 23. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, 
They lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Father, I pray now that I might be filled with the Holy Spirit and speak the word of God with boldness, and that we like the crowds in Jerusalem in those days, might have ears to hear and hearts to believe the message. Help us today, we pray. Speak to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes when she has spent the nine o'clock hour teaching the children's missions, memory, and music class, Toby will ask me at home on a Sunday afternoon, how was the prayer meeting? It's a good question to ask, I think. Uh, If you are for some reason unable to gather with the family of God for prayer, it's good to wonder, how was the prayer meeting today? Did the Holy Spirit seem to meet with His people? Were the prayers earnest and heartfelt? Was there a sense of desperation for God? How was the prayer meeting? I hope some of you, by the end of our time together, might just find yourself wondering, just how are the prayer meetings that we hold each Sunday morning at 9 o'clock? But I want you to imagine for a moment if you would have been one of the ladies that day in Acts 4 who perhaps volunteered to watch the children while the other people met to pray. Imagine the response when your husband arrived home that afternoon and you asked him, how is the prayer meeting? How would he even begin to describe what happened in that room that day? The boldness that they had in prayer, the shaking of the house, the filling of the Holy Spirit. This must have been among the most signal days in the experience of any of these believers' lives. And it took place, I hasten to point out to you, at a prayer meeting. And that prayer meeting is, of course, the answer to the question I posed a few moments ago. What did the disciples do with the threats that had been made towards them? What did they do with this commandment to stop preaching Jesus? What did they do with the nerve-wracked feelings that they may have felt in the pits of their stomachs in spite of their boldness in public before the council? Well, what they did was they went straight away to fill the rest of the church in on the proceedings, verse 23, and verse 24, when they, the rest of the church, when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God. When the church heard the report about the arrest and the threats 
and the prohibitions on speaking in Jesus' name, they held a prayer meeting. They held a prayer meeting. And noticing that fact, I just want to spend some time today considering the importance and the blessing of such meetings, of God's people coming together for corporate prayer. Now, I realize that it was an extraordinary series of events, indeed a difficult series of events that brought these people together, these arrests and these threats. That's what led to this prayer meeting, the kind of events that thankfully are not usually part and parcel of our experience. And I also realized that one particular event that took place at that prayer meeting was unusual as well. It's not every day that the building shakes at the end of our prayer time, is it? So I understand that this was an unusual prayer meeting called for unusual reasons, but while this prayer meeting took place under an uncommon set of circumstances, I still think it has a lot to teach us about our own gatherings for prayer in more common conditions, Sunday in, and Sunday out. And so while we work through the text this morning, I want clearly, obviously, to deal with the events as they were in those extraordinary days of Acts chapter 4, but I also want to draw out some lessons concerning our own need to pray together, even when the church is not in the pressure cooker in which she found herself in this chapter. I want us to realize our own need, verse 24, to lift our voices to God with one accord, our own need of the prayer meeting. And so the first thing that we need to notice is that when these early believers found themselves in need, when they found themselves in a jam, they prayed. They prayed. That's the first thing. Now, this isn't the first time that I've opened a teaching on prayer by making this same sort of seemingly overly obvious point. They prayed. I realize it's obvious. Of course they prayed, someone says. After all, you just told us you were going to preach about prayer meetings. And how do you have a prayer meeting without people praying? And given the dire straits they were in, it's all the more obvious, isn't it, that these people would have prayed. I mean, who wouldn't pray given such difficulties? Now, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Who wouldn't pray given such difficulties? Well, the answer is sometimes me. Sometimes maybe you as well. I'd like to think that, of course, I would pray if I were in such straits as those in which these folks found themselves. But experience has shown me, and maybe it's done this to you too, that sadly, that's not always my initial reflex. When I face difficulties, there are lots of other places to turn besides God, aren't there? And I seem, much of the time, spring-loaded to do just that, to turn to others instead of God. Most of us, I think, struggle with this to some extent. When difficulties arise, our instinct is to call a friend to talk it out or to vent or maybe to read a self-help book or to schedule an appointment with a professional or maybe more than anything else in these days, when difficulties arise, we do a Google search, right? And Those things aren't all bad, especially if you call a professional who can really help you or a trusted friend. Those are good things. But the question is, do we, as well as calling on human helpers and resources, do we cry out to our divine father and friend and counselor and helper, the one who loves us, the one who gave his son for us and who delights to answer our prayers and who will not give us stones when we ask for bread? 
Is it our normal, natural, reflex response when we're in trouble to cry out to this good, generous, loving, powerful God? Are we like children whose impulse reaction when they are scared in the night is to throw off the covers and run and find Daddy? What would our response be? Just for example, what would our response be if the local authorities told us this week not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus? Would our first thought be, would your first thought be to call your congressman or to call on your father? Would your mood turn angry at such news or would it turn prayerful? Would you begin to worry and fret? Or would you begin to pray with faith? Would our knee-jerk reaction to such news be, and when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God? I'd like to think so, and for many of us, that would be our first reaction. But I'm well aware in my own soul of how easy it is to call on other human beings instead of first upon God. Or to call upon our own inner resolve instead of on God. Or to fret instead of praying. Or just to resign to things as they are and not to pray out of a kind of defeatist apathy. All of these temptations I feel in my own breast, and I'm sure many of you do as well. Prayer ought to be more natural to us than unfortunately it is. And yet we can learn, and we can remember, and we can go back to the rock from which we are hewn, this early church, and learn again to respond by lifting our voices to God. Let me just ask you to help you put yourself in this sort of situation. Did you face any adversity this week? What was it? Bring it up in the bank of your memory right now. Did you face some kind of difficulty this week? And how did you respond who did you call first, Google or God? Did you fret like I so often do, or did you pray? Did you just try harder to take matters into your own hands, or did you get on your knees and place these things into the hands of God? Hands which, in the case of Jesus, I remind you, are nail-pierced. How did you respond to your difficulty? Did you immediately lift your voice to God or to someone else? How often I lift my voice to so many other people, many of them people that I should lift my voice to, but before I ever stop to lift my voice to my Heavenly Father. I know it seems obvious that we would say they prayed in times of difficulty, and it seems obvious that we would pray and pray more than ever in times of trial. And I found that sometimes that's true of me, But other times, I'm so distracted trying to fix my problem or find someone who can that the last thing I want to do is stop and pray. And when I do stop, often I'm so fidgety and so distracted by my worries that I end up getting very little praying done. It just gets worse. Do you feel that? If you do, I don't mind that maybe I've belabored the obvious this morning to begin by saying that the Jerusalem church, in the face of difficulty, prayed. Maybe the reason it was their immediate response to pray in this situation is because, as we have seen in chapters 1 and 2, they were so obviously already devoted to this habit. 
Of course they prayed now because they were in the habit of praying already. Am I in the habit of praying already? Are you? Is prayer a normal part of your life, just like eating and sleeping? Something that you know you must do if you're going to be healthy. It was for the Jerusalem church. They prayed. It's the most obvious thing in the world, isn't it? Of course Christians should pray, but how easily we forget. How easily I forget how good my father is, how eager my father is to meet my needs, how capable he is of coming through, how much he loves me, enough to give his own son for me, that I might come to him in prayer. How easily I forget, but don't you forget. Remember the Lord's kindness. Run to him in prayer. Not only on the days when everything falls apart, but on the sunny days as well. And even on the humdrum days. What an example the Jerusalem church has left us, simply in the fact that they prayed. But in the second place this morning, I want you to notice notice not only that they prayed, but how they prayed. How they prayed. And I just want to point out three things about their prayer. First of all, and this this is so important, they prayed, verse 24, together. They prayed together. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. Note those plural words well. They, they, voices. Those words refer not just to Peter and John who gave the report in verse 23, but to their own companions who heard it to the church. When they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. So the Jerusalem church members are the they in verse 24, and they and voices are plural. More than one person was praying about this, this, probably many more than one. In other words, it wasn't simply one leader standing at the front praying on everyone's behalf. They lifted their voices, plural. They prayed together with their fellow Christians. They held a prayer meeting. This isn't the first time we've seen this in the book of Acts, is it? We saw it also back in chapter 1, verse 14, the early believers meeting to pray together. And then chapter 2, verse 42, also seems to teach the same thing about them. These Jerusalem believers we read there were continually devoting themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Now the first three of those activities are clearly corporate activities. And it stands to reason then that the fourth one was as well. These Early Christians were continually devoting themselves to prayer and specifically to prayer together. Maybe it was in homes given the growing size of the congregation. Maybe they did have a church-wide prayer meeting like we do on Sundays at 9 o'clock. But whatever the format, they prayed together. And chapter 4, verse 24 is just another example of that, albeit in extraordinary circumstances. But again, maybe it seemed obvious for them to hold a prayer meeting in the midst of these extraordinary times because they were so used to praying together in all the normal times as well. Are you used to praying together with other Christians? If not, will you commit to getting used to it? If I read my New Testament correctly, it's normal for Christians to pray together with other Christians. And so it should be normal that many of us would want to be here at 9 o'clock to lift our voices to God with one accord, and that all of us would find some way of praying together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
But then secondly, as we think about how they prayed, notice that the early church not only prayed together, but that they prayed the scriptures. They prayed the scriptures. Did you notice that? Both in the latter part of verse 24 and again in the latter part of verse 25 and on into verse 26. All of those are quotations from the Old Testament. In the New American Standard Bible, you can spot Old Testament verses that are quoted by New Testament authors because they're printed in all caps. And that is what we have here in verses 24, 25, and 26. These saints were praying the words of the Old Testament, quoting particularly from Exodus 20 and from Psalm 2. We'll come back in a few moments and discuss why they may have quoted those particular passages. But for now, I just want you to see that these folks were conversant enough with the Bible as to be able to quote it back to God in their prayers and to apply it to their own prayer lives. They prayed the scriptures, and I commend that approach to prayer to you, that you learn the Bible so well that its language becomes your language when you pray. That you can think of biblical passages to apply to your own situation and pray them back to God. Or that maybe sometimes you just open the Bible in front of you and pray right through a particular passage that's open before you on the page. But however exactly you do it, I find this to be a wonderful example set by the Church of Jerusalem that they prayed the scriptures. And then also, I want you to see before we leave this second point that they acknowledged in their plenty of God. They acknowledged the sovereignty of God. Now listen to how they did that. First of all, in verse 24, they acknowledged God's sovereignty in creation. O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And then they acknowledged God's sovereignty over the events of the cross as well. Verses 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. God, you are sovereign in the things you've made. You are sovereign even in the worst event that has happened in human history. And that his hands were guiding the events even when wicked man, men killed his son. Well, Luke doesn't tell us for sure why they said these things, but the logical answer seems to me to be that they are reminding themselves that just as God was sovereign over those events, So he is also sovereign now. When once again, verses 25 and 26, the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. They acknowledge God's sovereignty over past events, perhaps as a way of comforting themselves that God was sovereign over present events as well. And again, I think this is an example worth imitating, especially when we face difficulties, that we be able to say to the Lord like they did, Oh, Lord, you made everything that is, the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And you were not only in control of all things then at the creation, but also at the cross. It was your hand and your purpose that predestined these things to be. And so, Lord, as I now face my own difficulties that seem so out of control, I remember your sovereignty over all things, over creation, over the cross, over everything. And I rest in knowing that you are in control even now. That this is not happening to me by chance or apart from your wisdom, that you know what you are doing. I think that's what this is about. 
And I believe if I remembered God's sovereignty more in my own life, I'd probably pray more often and with greater confidence. God really is sovereign. And Romans 8.28 says he wields his authority over heaven and earth to do us little children good if we are his children. So let's remember that when we pray. So that's a summary of how these Jerusalem Christians prayed. They prayed together. They prayed the scriptures. They acknowledged God's sovereignty in the face of the council's threats. But then let's notice in the third place what they prayed. What they prayed. And here again, I want to point out a few things to you. First of all, I want you to notice they acknowledged their troubles. They did. They didn't have to be stoic or pretend that they were unmoved or unconcerned by the threats that were being made against them and against the Lord and against the gospel. No. One of the reasons they quoted from Psalm 2, it seems to me, was as if to say, Lord, we're living in this psalm once again. They did it to Jesus, verses 26 and 27, and now they're doing it to us, verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. That's what they prayed. Take note of their threats. And you can pray that way too, can't you? Sometimes we get ourselves tangled up in a bad way, thinking, well, you know, God doesn't want or need to hear all my problems. Or maybe I think, if I keep coming to God, telling Him about how difficult things are, it's just going to be whining. And while it is possible for our prayers to become little more than whining and discontent, surely I think we see in this passage that it is good to tell the Lord, we're struggling. What's happening to us is not good. It's right for us to come to the Lord and say, take note of their threats. Take note of my financial straits. Take note of the difficulty I'm having at work. Take note of my arthritis. Take note of these family strains that we're having. Our Heavenly Father delights in taking note when His children are threatened with difficulties. And He delights in coming to their aid. So we shouldn't be afraid to offer our difficulties, even our complaints to the Lord, so long as our complaints don't come with a complaining spirit. The early church acknowledged their troubles. They acknowledged their difficulties. And surely implicit in that acknowledgement of their difficulties was the petition that God would intervene and provide relief. Don't you think? Surely they said, take note of their threats. And though they didn't continue on asking God to do something about their threats, surely that was on their heart, that God would help them, that God would intervene. But I do want you to notice that if that was an implicit petition, to God, that he'd intervene and provide relief. It wasn't their primary explicit petition. Did you notice how their prayer continued after asking the Lord to take note of the threats that were against him? There in verse 29, did you notice? And now, Lord, take note of their threats. And we'd expect it to read, and grant relief, and grant that they would stop threatening us, and grant that we would be free to preach the gospel, and all of those things would be right and good to pray. But notice that that's not what they prayed. What did they pray? And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. And that's the second thing to notice when we think about what they prayed. They acknowledged their trouble, but then they requested God's help 
Not first of all with their trouble, but they requested God's help in the preaching of his word. Isn't that interesting? Here they are facing threats for preaching in Jesus' name. In fact, their leaders have just spent a night in jail and a session before the Jewish council for doing so. And instead of primarily praying that God would change the situation and grant them relief, they prayed that he would help them be bold and keep on speaking the word in spite of the threats. They prayed that God would enable them to do just what Peter and John had said they would continue to do back in verse 20. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And verse 29 is as much to say, Lord, help us to do that. Help us to follow through on that commitment. They prayed for the preaching of the word. Now, again, we're not in the same situation as the one in which these folks found themselves in first century Jerusalem. We face very little, really, in terms of tangible opposition to the preaching of God's word. And yet, it still seems to me that we ought to place as high a premium on praying for the preached word as did the early church. We ought to pray for ourselves that we would witness boldly and with fruit at work and at school and in the neighborhood and so on. And we ought to pray earnestly for those who speak the word to us, our teachers and our preachers. Praying with the Jerusalem church, Lord, grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. I hope you pray for the preached word here at Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church and in all the other places where it goes out, in our city, in our state, in our country, and to the ends of the earth. But if you don't yet pray for the preached word, would you begin? Perhaps setting aside some time on Saturday night or taking a few minutes on Sunday morning or making it a point to be at the prayer meeting so that you can pray for the preaching of God's word here and elsewhere. That it would come with confidence and with power, and with accuracy, and with clarity, and so on. I started reading a book on preaching this week called Saving Eutychus, written by two fellows named Gary Miller and Phil Campbell. It's published by Matthias Media, who incidentally publishes a lot of great stuff. And the first main chapter of this book, Saving Eutychus, is on the importance of prayer in preaching. And since the book is written for preachers, I expected Miller to make a good deal about how important it is for a pastor to pray over his own preaching. And he did that. But then he did something that I didn't anticipate. He also spoke a good deal about how important it is for the congregation to pray for the preaching as well. And he instanced Acts chapter 4 as an example of this. But he also instanced a church in Aberdeen, Scotland. Gilcomston South Church, which he attended when at university in the late 70s and early 80s. Now, I've heard wonderful things about Gilk, as it's called, on more than one occasion, particularly about their quirky but wonderfully godly and fruitful minister, William Still. I would love to tell more stories about William Still. He's become something of a role model for me. But Miller shared something about Gilk. It wasn't so much about William Still, and it was something that I don't remember hearing before. And here's what he said, quote, I have never been a part of a church family that had a greater sense of expectancy when we gathered to hear the Bible explained. 
I have never been a part of a church family where prayer was so obviously the heartbeat of everything that went on. And I have never been a part of a church family where God was so obviously present week by week as he spoke through his word. And it seems to me, he says, there just might be a connection. And then he went on to describe the weekly prayer meeting, prayer meeting at Gilcomston South Church, which was held on a Saturday night and which was focused primarily on praying for the preaching of God's word that would happen the following morning all around the globe, including praying for the preaching at their own little church in the granite city of Aberdeen. And the idea, of course, is that just perhaps one central reason the people of that church held the weekly sermons in such anticipation, and one reason God so often showed up so powerfully during those sermons was because the people pleaded, like the church in Acts 4, for God's blessing upon the preaching. Let's bring that kind of praying to our own closets and to our own times of family worship and to our Sunday morning gathering for prayer. And then notice one more thing when we think about what the church prayed here in Acts 4. They acknowledged their troubles. They prayed especially for the preaching of God's word. And then also they prayed in verse 30 for signs and wonders. Verse 29, Now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal. And signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, we dwelt on the theme of signs and wonders in the book of Acts a good bit last week, so I won't belabor it here, but it seems to me again that the early church viewed miracles not as ends in themselves, but as God's attestations of the heavenly nature of the message that was preached alongside the miracles. And that seems to be the emphasis here. Lord, verse 29, give us power to proclaim your word boldly, and then you come alongside us with these miraculous signs that will give credence to what we're saying. And while, as I said a week ago, we live in a different era than the apostles, it seems to me legitimate that we still pray in similar ways, that we ask God to show himself mighty to a mostly apathetic world, first of all, through powerful prophetic preaching but also that we ask him to show himself mighty by other means as well, coming alongside of us to gain a hearing for his word and to demonstrate that we who speak it really are sent from God. It seems to me the big things this morning, in my mind anyway, are simply that these people prayed and that they did so together and that they pleaded for God's power on the preaching of his word. And I long that we be that kind of church that people could look back on their time at Pleasant Ridge and say what Gary Miller said of Gilcomston South. I have never been a part of a church family where prayer was so obviously the heartbeat of everything that went on. God delights in hearing his people's prayers, doesn't he? The New Testament teaches us that over and over again. Ask, and it will be given you, given to you. Seek. And you will find, knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? 
If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Or Luke 18, 7. Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? Isn't that the God we serve? A God who delights to hear his children pray? A God who delights and is all-powerful to answer our prayers? I think he proves his ability to answer our prayers once again in this passage. They prayed in verses 29 and 30 that God would enable them to speak his word with all confidence and that he would accompany such preaching with signs and wonders. And in verse 31, he gave them exactly what they asked for. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And I just challenge you, Let's see, let's just see what power we might find in the preached word, what filling with the Holy Spirit we might experience, what shaking God might do in our midst. If it can be said of us, both in times of pressure and on quiet Sunday mornings, week by week, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. 